Romans chapter 3. The apostle has done enough in Romans 1 and 2 to condemn Jews and Gentiles. He appeals to that fact in the ninth verse of chapter 3 that he has done enough to prove the point. In chapter 2, taking up the Jews as early as the first verse, he has pointed out their hypocrisy in judging the Gentiles while being guilty of the same sins. In verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 down through verse 11, there is no respect of persons with God, but he is going to judge every man according to his works, which is going to get the Jews just as hard as it's going to get the Gentiles. He then points out as he goes forward in this chapter that the Jews evilly were trusting in the law of God. While they preached it and boasted in it and rested in it, they were not obeying it. And so they were bringing upon themselves great judgment by blaspheming the name of God by their conduct while professing to have the revelation of God, as verses 23 and 24 tell us. Then in verses 25 through 27, the apostle says that if a Gentile who was not circumcised kept the righteousness of the law, isn't that just as good as being circumcised? Therefore, your external circumcision, Jews, does not mean much because a Gentile can be better than you by showing character rather than the character that you are showing, though you have external circumcision. And coming down to the last two verses, he points out the circumcision that pleased God and that results in God's praise of men wasn't external circumcision anyway. It was internal circumcision of the heart. When a man humbles himself and repents of his sins. And so with those 29 verses, the Apostle Paul took the Jews apart and proved that they were guilty before God on the same level as the Gentiles. Yet, before he finishes in the 20th verse of this third chapter, he's going to do two more things. Number one, he's going to handle four of their objections. And those four objections are in verses 1 through 8. Then, he will use verses 9 through 20 to take their scriptures and turn against them, because their own scriptures, in which they trusted, condemned them as vile sinners before God. Let's take verses 1 through 8. Four objections that the apostle raises in a very effective use of rhetoric is to raise your opponent's objections and to answer them very quickly before they even ask them. And so they don't spend the rest of the epistle wondering these four things. He takes care of them right here. There are four. They are in pairs of verses. The objection is stated by Paul, then the answer is given. One and two. The objection is stated by Paul, then the answer is given. Three and four, and five and six, and seven and eight. There are four objections and Paul's answer. Paul raises the objection on behalf of natural men, or skeptical men, or rebellious Jews, or flagrantly, heinously sinning Jews, and states the objection for them. Let's get it. Verse one. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Paul, the way that you have just presented chapter 2 would mean that there is no advantage to being a Jew. You have destroyed the advantage of being born in Israel. You have destroyed the right of our citizenship called circumcision. What advantage then hath the Jew? You know and we know that there is an advantage to being a Jew, but the way you wrote in chapter 2 seems to deny that fact. What advantage then hath the Jew? 
Paul is asking on behalf of Jews. And what profit is there of circumcision? Or, what profit is there of circumcision? If you were to read chapter 2, you would think that Paul had taken away any advantage to being a Jew and any bit of profit from being externally circumcised. But external circumcision did make them citizens of Israel. And being Jewish did carry benefits. And so Paul answers their objection. They are trying to point out that Paul took his argument too far in chapter 2 and that everyone knows that there are advantages to being a Jew and circumcision does have its place. And so they're trying to make Paul look like he overstated the argument and that he's wrong by the questions raised in verse 1. So his answer is, he conceded some things to them. What advantage then hath the Jew? Much. Every way. There are so many advantages to being a Jew. To be born a Jew was to have an advantage over a Gentile by any measure that you wanted to make. Much, every way. He concedes the question, though he does not give them the answer they want. He says much every way except the one way they wanted to hear, and that is that they would be justified and finally saved because they were Jews. He says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them is eternal life and justification by the righteousness of God because they are Jews? No. Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The greatest advantage a Jew had was the fact that God gave his revelation, his scriptures, the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the books of the prophets, and the Psalms, To the Jews. So his answer in verse 2 is, yes, there is advantage. I have not negated those advantages. And the chief advantage is the scriptures. Now, our brother and son, Jonathan Carnell, pointed out last Sunday after the services to me. Do you notice how Paul gave them something in verse 2 and then took that gift that he gave them in verse 2 and turned it into a club in verses 10 through 18. Do you see that? Much every way. There are many advantages to being a Jew. There's There's a lot of advantages in every way you want to measure men. But chiefly, the greatest advantage that a Jew has is not eternal life. The greatest advantage a Jew has is the Scriptures. But then verse 10 starts out with these words. As it is written... And he takes those scriptures and quotes six passages from them and pounds those Jews with the greatest concession that he gave them. The biggest concession he gave them was that their chief blessing of being a Jew was to have the scriptures. But then he takes the scriptures and quotes from them six times in verses 10 through 18 and shows the Jews to be sinners by their scriptures, which was their greatest blessing. I hope you can enjoy... Holy Spirit-inspired rhetoric. Verse 3. I hope you understand 1 and 2. I want you to remember, in verses 1 through 8, there are four objections and four answers, one verse given to each. Objection, answer, objection, answer, all the way down through it. Okay then, Paul, if you're telling us that, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? This argument runs this way. We have the scriptures of God. We have the religion and the worship of God. 
That religion and worship of God included God's promises to us of how He was going to take care of us and save us and we would be His people and He would give us eternal life. So what if there was a few problems of unbelief? Are you going to tell us that a few Jews not living up the way they should have is going to destroy the religion of God of the Old Testament? You mean God's not going to keep His promises? Because a few Jews weren't as righteous and as careful as they should have been? This is the argument of verse 3. For what if some did not believe? For what if some did not believe? How do you need to hear it to understand it? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Isn't God still going to keep His promises? Isn't the religion of being a Jew still going to bear its fruit of eternal life for all of us because we're God's chosen people? Do you mean to tell me that just because there's a few sin problems in our nation that God is not going to keep His promises? That's the argument. The answer, God forbid. There is nothing that can overthrow the promises of God and the religion of God. God is altogether true and men are altogether liars. The axiom with which I answer this objection is, God forbid, we never cast a doubt on the character or the promises of God. Everything God has promised, He will do. God is faithful. Men are unfaithful. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. The objection runs like, the answer runs like this. You want to force me into saying that God is not fair because of men's sins, or God is not righteous because of men's sins, or the religion of God's going to fail and His promises won't come true because of some men's sins? You're going to try to cast doubt on the character of God? God forbid. There's one thing we can know in this objection and answer. God is true. And that is where we go with every argument. If we ever entertain an argument that casts doubt on the character of God, we have entered an argument that we should leave as soon as possible. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Not some being unbelievers, but every man a liar. I don't, Paul's saying, I don't care if it's me, I don't care if it's you, I don't care if it's the elders of Israel, we do not cast an evil reflection on the character of God. As it is written, Now let me use your scriptures to answer this one. That thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Because a few lived sinfully, does that mean God's not going to keep his promises? Oh no, God is always true, and God will keep his promises. The error of the Jews was to assume that the promises of God were unconditional, and that they had salvation by being Jewish. And Paul is pointing out that is not the case. The judgments of God are according to righteousness, and the religion of God includes his judgments and his sayings of what he's going to do against ungodly and wicked men, even if they are Jews. And the example that he brings forward is one of the most beloved men of the whole Old Testament, David. He quotes Psalm 51 about David because David had precious promises given to him by God. I mean, you go read 2 Samuel chapter 7, you know it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible where God and David exchanged back and forth about God loving David and considering him exceptional 
in wanting to build him a house when God hadn't said a thing about having a temple. And so they, they, they talk back and forth in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was a man after God's own heart. God delighted in David. God told us more about David than any other ten men. God gave us the Psalms. God gave us David's heart. God gave us David's life. We know details of David's life. We have great promises given to David and to his seed forever. I mean, David would say in 2 Samuel 7, this is not the way of God with men. The way that you are talking to me right now has not occurred before. This is not how God speaks to men. David had that kind of a relationship. Now, if there was ever a man that should have been spared the judgment of God for his sins, it would have been David. But was David spared the judgment of God because of his sins? No. And what would David say about it? That God's not fair? That God's religion is failing? That God's promises to him were now broken? No. Here's what David said. It's from Psalm 51 in the middle of verse 4 here in Romans chapter 3. That thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Lord, I know one thing about this transaction between you and me. I have sinned by adultery and I have sinned by murder. I have not sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah, the Hittite, like I have sinned against you. I have broken your covenant with me. I have broken your law. So that you are justified in everything you have said against me. Had God said a few things against David? Yes, he had said David would sit on my throne forever. But he had he said something else. I'm going to raise up evil from your own family. I'm going to shame you in front of your enemies. I'm going to shame you. I'm going to bring trouble into your house. You're going to be a man of war. Your son is going to take your own wives on the palace rooftop. You tried this sin in secret and private. I'll make it public. Those were sayings that Nathan the prophet uttered against David. And these are the sayings David is referring to here that God was righteous in all that he said. God hadn't failed. David had failed. David's failing resulted in God's righteousness in David's opinion. In these judgments that David, that God spoke against David, David saw God's righteousness, God's fairness, God's integrity, and God's faithfulness. This is the answer to the objection in verse 3. Is not the religion of God such that even if we do have a few sin problems, that God is still going to save us? God forbid, you're trying to say that God's promises are going to overrule His declarations that if you sin, you will be judged for that sin. Do you think they knew passages like, The soul that sinneth, it shall die? Absolutely they knew that. Do you think they had ever heard Deuteronomy 28, where the first 15 verses tell Israel that if they're obedient, they'll be blessed, and the last 53 verses of the chapter tell them if they're disobedient, they'll be cursed? Do you think they knew that? God was true. God forbid that we should say the religion of God, the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, the integrity of God should be questioned at all by the fact that I put Jews and Gentiles under the wrath of God in Romans chapter 2. Because David gives us an example. If there was ever a man that had promises extended to him, it was David. And yet David justified God completely and said that God was righteous 
in his sayings against David. And if anyone were to sit in judgment against God, he would come up wanting because there is no judgment against God. That God would overcome in such a situation. That's in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. This is Paul's answer, quoting David by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that their presumption that they could live any way they wanted to, but God had an unconditional relationship with them, was wrong. That God was righteous in condemning them because they had all sinned. Just like David understood it and did not find any fault with God, nor any breakdown of his religion or his promises. We've got to move on. Verse 5 is objection number 3. Well, if that's the case, I put it in other words for your understanding, I hope. Well, if that's the case, that when we sin, God is shown to be righteous and just by judging us, if that's the case, if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? May I say something this terrible? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Paul said, I speak as a man. I speak only as a natural man that would raise such a point, that would even consider such words. Is God unrighteous? Men do not like the fact that God judges men for their sins and gets glory from judging men for their sins. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Does the Bible say that in Proverbs 16:4? Believe it. Objection number three is, if God's righteousness is declared and shown in his judgments against us by our sins, then it is our unrighteousness that's commending the righteousness of God. That isn't fair. Although it's formed as a question, is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? We will run into this kind of an argument in chapter 9. Thou wilt say then unto me, Paul said this about his objectors. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? God forbid. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? So verse 5 is them questioning, based on what Paul said in verse 4, that God's righteousness is manifested and shown And his integrity is actually confirmed when men sin and they're judged for it. They then take this approach. Well, that just isn't fair. That's un, isn't, wouldn't you say that's unrighteousness with God? That his righteousness is commended when we sin? What's Paul's answer? God forbid, verse six. For then how shall God judge the world? Your line of reasoning is, is totally corrupt. If your line of reasoning is correct in verse five, then God has no way to justly condemn and judge the world. That's what he's saying in verse 6. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? This is the Latin expression, reductio ad absurdum. It's reducing an argument to its absurdity by pointing out that if your argument in verse 5 is true, then according to what Paul responded with in verse 6, God would be unable to judge the world. But because God is able to judge the world, and the Jews knew that full well from Old Testament scriptures like Ecclesiastes 12, 14, and that God would get glory from the judgment of the world, they knew that their argument had ended at the end of verse 6, even though Paul's words are few. Isn't it amazing what the heart and mind of a natural man, I speak as a man, 
will do to escape the judgment of God. What advantage then hath the Jew? Isn't there some part of my birthright that's going to get me into heaven? So what if we have a few sin problems? Isn't God going to keep his word and take care of me anyway? If God's righteousness is magnified by my sin, that isn't fair. That's unrighteousness on the part of God. Paul takes these arguments apart. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6. The fourth argument, the fourth objection that men would have. It's just like verse 5. It's just made a little bit more personal. Verse 5 is a reflection on God's general character. Verse 7 is it's not fair to me. Verse 7, for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Had Paul basically taught that about David? Did David's lie bring great glory to God's righteous law? Yes, it did. David said that he might be just in all his sayings against me and might be proven just when he is judged. God is right and fair and just and righteous in all that he's done against me. So the argument is in verse 7, if the truth of God, if what you're saying here is right, if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Why is God treating me like a sinner if his glory has been exalted because of my sin? Paul's answer is in verse 8. Paul says, well, if you want to go that far, why don't we just take your argument a little farther? If you really want to emphasize the fact that your lying brought God's greater glory and you want to object against that fact and you just want to excuse yourself that you don't deserve to be judged for your lying if it brings God greater glory, then let's just take it another step. Let's take it and say rather, and not rather, shouldn't we go this far with your argument? Let us do evil that good may come. Because, see, you need to take out what's in parentheses, because what's in parentheses is extra matter that will confuse you in understanding verse 8 unless you remove it momentarily. We remove it momentarily because it is not germane to the point at hand. It's Paul adding some additional information that this particular argument had risen in the churches of Jesus Christ and was being put out by Jewish haters of the Apostle Paul. Verse 7 is the argument. If God's truth hath more abounded by my lying, why am I judged as a sinner if God's getting a benefit from my lying? Paul's answer. If your argument stands, then we ought to take it this far. Let us do evil that good may come. If you want to cry and whine about God getting glory from your lying, then let's just lie some more so that God can get some greater glory. And what does Paul say about such men? Whose damnation is just. If you want to call God's character into question like that, and you want to try to justify your sinning by any grounds, your damnation is just. God's judgment falling upon you is perfectly appropriate and deserved. Inside the parentheses, we have been slanderously reported, and we have had some affirm that we say these things. So I am not making this altogether up. This has been said about our doctrine and our gospel. Let us do evil that good may come. 
That is not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is, thou shalt not bear false witness, and that tells you all that you need to know about lying. You shouldn't lie. And if God gets glory from it, or if His truth is exalted because of it, God has a right to punish you because you have sinned against His revealed will. Thou shalt not lie. But if you want to say it's not fair for you to be judged, then you might as well increase your sinning to increase the glory of God. Let us do evil that good may come. The and not rather is Paul's answer. Are you sure that you want to end in verse 7, folks? You objectors against my doctrine, are you sure you want to end with 7? And not rather go the next step and say, let us do evil that good may come. Whose damnation is just. And so Paul ends. Four objections and their answers. Verse 9, when he says, what then? Are we better than they? He is going back to verse 1 and comparing Jews and Gentiles. What then does not fit verse 8? What then does not fit verse 7? What then goes back to verse 1? What then? What is the conclusion that we can draw regarding Jews and Gentiles? Are we Jews better than they Gentiles? No. In no wise. That got your attention, didn't it, James? Young children who have been taught the word no. Whenever I come to Romans 3, 9, I heard all about it last Sunday and the Sunday before. When I, when I hollered rather loudly the word no from Romans 3, 9, it, it got their attention. As if they were about to stick their fingers in a wall socket and mommy and daddy said no real loud to them. It'll give you more hair, James. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Paul said, I've just handled your four objections, but back to the question, is a Jew better than a Gentile? When it comes to standing before God on the day of judgment, no. In no wise is there any advantage to being a Jew when it comes to the day of judgment. So though he had said in verse 2, there were many advantages to being a Jew, and there were, they're countless. There's, there's no way that you'd rather be a Gentile than a Jew under the Old Testament. But the one way they wanted, Paul wouldn't grant. What then? Are we better than they know in no wise? For we have before proved. Where is that before proved? In epistle number one, and this is second Romans? No, in chapters one and two of this epistle. We have before proved the case that Jews and Gentiles are both equally guilty and condemned before God. Verse 10 opens up with, as it is written. Paul appeals to these scriptures that are the chief blessing of being a Jew. As it is written, and verses 10 through 12 are general rules about the entire human race, but given to Israel about them. As it is written, verse 10 of Romans 3, taken out of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, there is none righteous, no, not one. The greatest advantage that I could give you Jews, if you want to find an advantage over the Gentiles, The greatest one I could give you is that you have the Scriptures. But when we open the Scriptures to Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, in the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be established, we find these words written about you. There is none righteous, no, not one. Oh, all of a sudden, they didn't like the Scriptures. They love the Scriptures in verse 2. They don't like the Scriptures in verse 10. I hope you can see God, and the wisdom of this is precious. Do you know that when it comes to literature... There is no polemical book 
like Romans or Hebrews or other epistles and prophets of the Bible that can be compared to any book on earth. The wisdom that is found by the Holy Spirit in the reasoning in such few words. Do you know that he had... He stated four objections and he gave four answers in eight short verses to open the third chapter. Do you know what that takes? Inspiration. Do you know how long it would take you? Eight pages. At least. Oh Lord, I love, I love thy law. When Jesus spoke, you know, they were afraid to ask him any more questions. Because, oh, if they, if they asked Jesus a question, the way he answered it just shamed them, confounded them in front of their enemies. And yet, there's no difference here. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of His Son? The Lord Jesus Christ was full of the Spirit of God. That's why He spoke the way He did. It's why Paul wrote the way he did. They were writing and speaking by the same Spirit. And so the same wisdom is right here in the way that Paul is dispatching the Jews. He had already proven his point by verse 29 of chapter 2, but since they did not want to accept it and humble themselves to repentance, he goes ahead and really hurts them in chapter 3, 1 through 20. Verses 1 through 8, by taking their objections for them. So that you won't have to try to verbalize these, since it might be a little too much, I'll go ahead and verbalize them for you and answer them. Then, because you want to know if you have an advantage over Gentiles, I will take your chief advantage and I will open its pages and see what it says about you. Six quotations. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Should the Jews have got the lesson? You want me to use your Scriptures? You want to consider your advantages over the Gentiles? The biggest is the Bible. Let's turn to the Bible. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And look at what it said about them. And all men. And then we went into verse 13. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Paul is quoting down through six passages from the Old Testament, one after another, to point out the sinfulness of men. After having stated the general rule in verses 10 through 12, that there is none righteous, that there is none that seeketh after God, that they are all gone out of the way, that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. After stating those general rules that we love, because those rules teach us something about salvation. It must originate outside of man. I cannot find a sinner that is in verses 10 through 12, and by some sort of persuasion, get him to invite Jesus into his heart, or to make a decision for Jesus, or to get baptized, or to keep the sacraments in any saving way, because the verse says, there is none that seeketh after God, there is none that understandeth. This is where we build our doctrine of salvation, is in passages like this. And the Apostle Paul is building the epistle of the Romans with passages like this. 
Because he quotes these six passages to point out that even the Jews, with the greatest of religious privileges, had character like this. Now you think that you're going to go into the jail and you're going to be able to somehow persuade a man to invite Jesus into his heart? There is none that seeketh after God. If you end up in a jail sometime, and I want to tell you that the only jail ministry in the Bible is when the man with the Bible is inside the bars. Please. There's no jail ministry in the Bible where the man with the Bible is outside the bars. Why would you go to a jail to present the gospel? It's the last place on earth you'd go. I'm sorry if you spent a few years incarcerated and you're wondering why I'm talking like this about your home away from home. It's because the only jail ministry in the Bible, Paul and Silas were on the inside, naked, in shackles, locked up in the innermost prison. And it was the jailer that came to them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And when a man says to you, sir or ma'am, what must I do to be saved? You can know one thing for sure. God has been at work. And God has done a great work. And the power of the work that God has done, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is comparable and equal to the raising of His Son from the dead. Because, and you hath He quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, Do you know why we believe all this about salvation and that regeneration must take place first? Because when we read verses like this, and it says there is none that understandeth, that means they don't have any understanding of God and what they ought to do to please God, and there is none that seeketh after God, and they are all gone out of the way, and they are together become filthy, and there's none that doeth good. When we read those things, we understand that we cannot persuade such a man to do something pleasing to God. God must change the man first. Then we hear the words, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then we hear the words, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I'll tell you the persuasive power that was exerted on behalf of that thief that caused him to say that. Do you want to hear it? Do you want to hear the gospel message summarized in one word when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks it? Live! Amen. Amen. Or, okay, you want a two-word gospel. Come forth! You say, I want a three-word gospel. Thief, come forth! That's what makes all the difference. This is what we believe. This is where we're hanging our doctrine, our theology, our lives in this world and our lives in the next. Because when we look at this passage, it declares very plainly to us, That man's heart is totally corrupt and has no interest in the things of God. And there is no flannel graph lesson nor a vaccination that you are going to give to some pagan to cause them to seek after God. They'll only be seeking for another vaccination for their brother. We don't take medical aid, nor do we take food to the heathen thinking that is going to get them into the kingdom of heaven. No man can come unto me except you make your lesson persuasive? No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up again at the last day. Amen. Oh. 
we're getting way sidetracked, but it is, I like the railroad. It's taking us down the Romans road. It's just a little different Romans road. You know where they want to go in Romans chapter 3 to 23? For all have sinned. But they don't want to define sin for you. Do you want to get sin defined? Then it's 10 through 18. That's right. Let's take the Romans road that runs through 10 through 18 and see if you're going to take someone from verse 23 and get them saved. Now Jesus can get them saved. That's right. When it says whose heart the Lord opened, who are we talking about? Lydia. Whose heart the Lord opened. Did Paul open her heart? Did Paul say, give me your heart, Lydia? Lydia, will you open your heart to Jesus today? Did any of that happen in Acts 16 and verse 14? Or did the Lord Jesus Christ say, you want to hear a one-word gospel? Open! Does the Bible say that when Jesus opens, no man closes? And when Jesus closes, no man opens. Has he said open to you? Praise the Lord. Did he say live to you? Thank you, Lord. These verses are so wonderful. And Paul understood their importance as the foundation to condemn every man, Jew and Gentile, and to shut every mouth, especially Jews, that all the world would become guilty before God. The last three clauses of verse 19. He goes after the mouth, and we dealt with that last Lord's Day. Verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And I went through every one of these clauses with you, and I'm not going to do it again today. But I just want to remind you of what we, went, what we saw there. We asked ourselves, is there anything dead inside of us that sometimes comes out, and you can smell it when we open our mouths? By our speech do we sometimes let out the vile nature of our heart. Jesus said that it's impossible to bring something good out of a bad heart and it's impossible to bring something bad out of a good heart. In Matthew chapter 12, and that we shall give an account for every idle word in the day of judgment. Is there anything dead inside of you that comes out sometimes when you open your mouths? Verse 13, the first clause. Second clause. With their tongues they have used deceit. Have you ever exaggerated? Have you ever lied? Given false witness or slandered anyone. With their tongues, they have used deceit. Have you ever tried to escape the just consequences of your foolishness by telling a second lie to escape the punishment of the first lie? Children are known for that wisdom. I've ever, I'll wait till you're, I look back there and see some of you young parents. You catch, you catch your child at something. And if they would just say, yes, daddy, I did that. Please beat me and let's get it over with. Instead, no, daddy, I didn't do it. Jacob did it. Jacob did it. I didn't do it. I wouldn't do anything like, oh, no, daddy. No, daddy. And they'll lie. And they'll lie. Right, Paul? Yeah. We know by experience. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Have you ever bit anyone with sarcasm? Does the Bible speak about there is like the piercings of a sword? Are there men that they open their mouths and it's like a sword? They cut people. They bleed people. 
And they go their way and they don't care because they have the poison of asps under their lips. Do you know the Bible says that in the power of the tongue there is life and death? And whoso loveth it shall eat the fruit thereof. Right. Has your tongue ever bit anyone? Lord, forgive us. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Have you ever let bitterness come out? Has there ever been an occasion with your spouse, with your parents, with anyone where you have held on to past offenses for months, maybe for years, maybe for decades, and you let go with that bitterness that comes ripping out of you, whose mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. I hope from reading Psalm 59 earlier today, you saw that King Saul and his cohorts had mouths full of cursing and bitterness against David when they should have had none but praise for his loyalty and prowess as a great supporter of Saul and a defender of the kingdom of Israel. Verse 14, their feet are swift to shed blood. Violence. They love violence and they chase it down. They pursue it quickly. What is there in us that causes us to explode with anger at times? How can you say, watching a football game, oh, I've heard this done before. You're watching a football game and see a referee make a call that you didn't see quite that way. What pleasant words come out of your mouth about that referee? Now, what in the world did he do to you? He could could write Psalm 59 against you. And yet, you hate him. Yet, you'd like to kill him. Their feet are swift to shed blood. I don't want to make it so far removed that you think you can just skate on out here today without thinking this applies to you. This applies to every single one of us. Jesus would say you're guilty of killing if you're angry with your brother without a cause. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. This is not describing the destruction and misery that God brings on wicked men. This is the destruction and misery that God that is being described here that men bring on other men. Have you seen families tore up, marriages tore up, relationships tore up because misery and destruction are in their ways. They love causing misery to other people. They love being unhappy to make other people unhappy. They love to destroy relationships. They love to destroy the peace. They love to destroy unity. They love to destroy relaxation, comfort, and pleasure. And by nature, we're all that way because we are selfish. And if we can't have our way, then we're going to make sure you don't get anything your way. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Verse 17, in the way of peace have they not known. I describe the natural man that is in every single one of you. Look into the mirror of God's word and see that you are very ugly. But brethren, there is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ never had destruction and misery in his way. He never spoke with guile. There was never the poison of asps. Under his lips, and in the sight of God, I am clothed with his perfect righteousness. I have never said an evil or a harsh word toward anyone. And I thank God for Jesus Christ, my Lord. But, we're in Romans chapter 3, and we haven't got to Jesus Christ yet. We're going to get to him soon enough. Verse 17, the way of peace have they not known. Constantly disrupting peace. they're They're not peacemakers like they should be. There are so many examples of this in the Bible when you think about Joseph's brethren. What in the world was going on for those brethren to so hate Joseph that they were, their feet were swift to shed blood? It was only by getting some money out of the transaction that they didn't kill him. They lied 
Deceit was in their lips and with their tongue they used deceit to their father about a, a wild animal having taken Joseph out. What wickedness! How about the feet of Cain? How swift were they to shed blood because his brother was righteous? Not that his brother was innocent. His brother was better than innocent. His brother was righteous. And evil men hate righteous men because they know those righteous men are better than they are. And they are better than they are. The way of peace have they not known. If you sow discord among brethren, God's going to throw you down into hell. God hates those who sow discord among brethren. We should have one chord in here. And that is the notes tied together to make one beautiful sound. This church should be known for its harmony, not its discord. Lord, help us. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This quotation is from Psalm 36 and verse 1, where David wrote, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. When a man sins, it says something about him. It tells us, it tells ourselves, it tells us if we sin. It tells us about you if you sin. It tells us there is no fear of God before his eyes, because if there was a fear of God there, you wouldn't sin. David wrote, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. I learn something on the heart level when I watch a man sin. When he says something he shouldn't, when he's violent towards someone, when he breaks the peace, when he, when he causes misery in relationships, when he does that, I know something about that man. He doesn't fear God. Now, the wicked never do anything pleasing to God. They are constantly declaring about themselves that there is no fear of God before their eyes. David said he saw that about them. Paul here quotes that Psalm 36 and verse 1 to apply it against these Jews, and it's the last of the six quotations. And we also refer to that verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, how will you reason with a sinner that has no fear of God? How will you reason with them? What will you appeal to? How will you threaten them? How will you warn them? How will you rebuke them? How will you correct them? He has no fear of God before his eyes. The Lord is able to make you fear Him. The Lord puts the fear of God in our hearts. He stirs it up by His Spirit. He stirs it up by His Word. Have you read the Bible? When God realized through Moses... Several hundred years before they had a king. I love the Bible. And I love God. He's the ultimate prophet. He knows exactly where you're going and what you're going to do. And so he wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you have a king. I thought Moses wrote Deuteronomy 17. I didn't think they had a king until after all the period of Judges, that the whole book of Judges is about. And then after Samuel... Then finally they had King Saul. What was Moses when you have a king? I want you to make sure that the scriptures are copied out and given him a personal copy. Oh, this is the greatest government in the world. You want a constitution? Are you kidding me? We the people. Are you kidding me? You want a government? Give me a king with one book to read and to live by. Amen. That's God's monarchy. Deuteronomy 17. Copy the words of this law out and give the king a personal copy that he may read them and fear me 
all the days of his life. Yes. See, the fear of God can be stirred up by the Word of God, but it has to be put there first by God with a new man, or there is no fear of God before their eyes. We look at a verse like this, and we understand that we cannot change men to fear God, to love God. God is going to have to make that change. Paul used it here to point out to these Jews that these six quotations from the Scriptures they so highly esteemed condemned them. So he says in verse 19, Now we know. Now we Jews know. That's why he's using that we as the plural, first person, pronoun there. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, and I just quoted it six times, it saith to them who are under the law, you Jews, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What was the mouth still speaking? The mouth that was still wagging itself? It's in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? See, the Jewish mouth was still talking, and so the apostle brought six passages of Scripture to bear to point out to the Jews that were under the law that the Bible had something to say to the Jews, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Once I get you Jewish mouths stopped with your own Scriptures, then you know that you're on the same playing field as the Gentiles. The whole world is guilty before God. Verse 20, Therefore, By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. It is impossible by any use of the law of God to be justified in the sight of God because the law just shows us our sinfulness. The six quotations I just made of the law showed Jewish sinfulness. And it's not the hearing of the law that justifies men, but it's the keeping of the law as 2.12 taught. And so we come all the way from 3.1 to 3.20. Paul's already proven his point in chapter 2. But he adds to it four objections and their answers. He adds to it the use of their own scriptures to point out to the Jews that their mouths should be stopped. They had no further arguments to make. That all the world would become guilty before God. And that the law could not justify them. For the law showed the knowledge of sin. It did not show salvation. It showed condemnation. It did not show justification or righteousness. It showed sin. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then last Lord's Day, in the second assembly, we got to get into verse 21, but now. And this huge change from teaching the condemnation of Jews and Gentiles now introduces and explains and defines our justification outside the law through Jesus Christ our Lord. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, The Old Testament spoke of it, but it became clearly revealed with the ministry of John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his apostles. It was now made visible, clear, and obvious to all that salvation and justification and righteousness to stand before God was not by the law. For verse 20 told us the law just shows us our sinfulness. It was outside the law by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we lay hold of it by faith in Him. And we will take that up when we come back. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. May the Lord bless us by the power of His Spirit to know the love of Christ and the salvation that we have in Him. That we have been saved from our nature. That we hold just like the children of wrath. Amen.